0: Welcome to the Maitrepa College podcast. Maitrepa College is a Tibetan Buddhist graduate school in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Interested in Buddhism and want to take your understanding deeper? Each week we feature different teachings, conversations and highlights from our community programs and archives. We invite you to join us in listening to and learning from some of the great contemporary Buddhist minds in America today. This week's episode from our Thursday night community programming features a teaching from visiting professor Roger Jackson. Why Tsongkhapa Matters.
1: I, th- I think most of you have probably heard, uh, and if you don't know it, uh, you'll, you'll know it, <laughs> that uh, uh, 2019 marks the 600th, uh, what I like to call the para-nirvana-versary of, uh, of Tsongkhapa, um, who is, of course, uh, as, as again, I think almost all of you are aware, is regarded as the founder of what we now call the, the Geluk tradition. The tradition actually has had a number of names over the years. And um, in the early years, it was sometimes called the Neo-Kadampa because of the inspiration from Atisha. It was called the Gandenpa uh because Ganden was the first of the uh of the great Gaeluk monasteries anyway but it it came over time to be called the Gaeluk, and Tsongkhapa is, is clearly the, the the presiding and founding genius of this tradition in which you know many of us uh practice quite seriously um i am going to make a, just a couple of very broad statements about Tsongkhapa pa to begin with and then uh, kind of go from there the I think Tsongkhapa can rightly be regarded as a kind of Tibetan culture hero on more or less the same plane as figures like Padmasambhava, who, of course, Guru Rinpoche, who is a, one of the founders, some would say the real founder of Tibetan Buddhism back in the 8th century, um, or Milarepa, a great poet yogi of the... Um, 11th to 12th century, who's one of the founding figures of the Kagyu school, uh, or Sakya Pandita, who's a great, one of the greatest of all Tibetan scholars, a master not just of Tibetan, but of Sanskrit as well, who did a great deal to introduce uh, Indian literary forms to Tibet and the Indian logical and epistemological traditions. Sakyapandita is a, is a, redoubtable and important figure as well. And Songkhapa certainly is on the same plane as uh, these figures, in part because uh, even though each of them is associated with a particular Tibetan school or order, Padmasamava, of course, with the Nyingma, uh, Milarepa with the Kagyu, Sakya Pandita, not not surprisingly, with the Sakya, Tsongkhapa with the Geluk, these are sort of the four major schools. They their appeal and respect for them goes beyond sectarian lines. And so, you know, much later, when when people are still uh, debating about Tsongkhapa's ideas, centuries after his passing, um, people in other schools will say, well, Tsongkhapa had it figured out, it's just his followers who really didn't understand what he had to say, and we'll set them straight on that. Um, anyway, he's a, a widely revered figure, and. Part of what I want to do tonight is to show you uh, why he was important in his own time and why in some ways he's, he's still important now. Uh, the, the latter may be less evident in some ways, but I, I think uh, why Tsongkhapa matters is, is something to, um, you know, to consider for our own time as well as just thinking historically. Um, Probably the, just the last prefatory point I'll, I'll make here is that the, the, probably the, s-, the signal intellectual and spiritual achievement of Tsongkhapa was to put together, as nobody before him had, had even attempted to do, something, something like a synthesis of everything he had received from the Indian and the Tibetan tradition before him. We're talking about 1,500 years, roughly, of Buddhist uh, intellectual and and spiritual uh, tradition, and uh, he he put these into a a, a a synthesis, almost in in the true sense of that term, taking what he thought was the best from every particular tradition and putting them together into this grand architectonic, this system that that. Just holds together, or seems at least to hold together, flawlessly and seamlessly. Um, And it's it's is not necessarily the the approach that all Tibetan thinkers take by any means. Uh, Jeffrey Samuel and his wonderful 1993 book, "Civilized Shamans," which is a, a a kind of a more or less an anthropological analysis of Tibetan civilization talks about the distinction between what Tsongkhapa tried to do which was in a, this scholastic synth- synthesis a little bit like Thomas Aquinas in the Christian tradition taking everything and putting it together into this grand structure and you know, the somewhat looser weave that you see in other Tibetan traditions. Samuel is thinking particularly about the Rime or non-sectarian movement of 19th century Eastern Tibet, where uh, they didn't try to put everything together into one big structure. They, you know, they would support this, they would support that, and it was, uh, it was a a rather more uh, flexible, might not be the right term, but a more kind of eclectic approach. Um, anyway, Songkhapa's, uh, you know, sort of stands as as maybe the single figure in the history of Tibetan monasticism and in Tibetan intellectual and spiritual life who more than any other tried to take everything and put it together into one system. Um, so, so that's you know maybe on on the broadest plane that's what he's best known for. So I'm going to spend I'm going to spend probably more time tonight talking about Tsongkhapa in his own time. At the very end, I'll try to make a case for uh, some of the things we ourselves in our context can can appreciate about Tsongkhapa and and learn from Tsongkhapa. Not not so much on the level of this or that doctrine, but as ways of approaching life, approaching religion, approaching the world. Um, and and one thing, one sort of. Uh, thing I should say is what this talk is not going to be is a, it's not going to be a highly philosophical talk. Uh, we're going to, f- I'm going to focus more on the events of Songkhapa's life. I'll mention various important texts that he wrote. And certainly I'll mention a few important ideas that he had, but, but it's, it's not going to, we're not going to go into scholastic fine detail here. For one thing, I'm, I'm very ill-equipped to do that. Um, you know, we, the, the, the Bob Thurmans, the, the, the Jose Cavazans, the, um, the Jeffrey Hopkinses, the Bill McGee's can, can lead you in, into that very, very well. Um, I'll, I'll do what I can on this, uh, this other very different plane. Um, when we talk about Songkop in his own time, and I probably somewhere should have put his dates. It's uh, not, not very good preparation of me, but his dates are 1357 to 1419. Um, and, and I, I want to try first to, to just give you a little bit of a sense of, of the context, the historical and religious context into which he was born in northeastern Tibet in 1357. Um, most of you perhaps are aware that Tibetans themselves, when they talk about their religious history, divide it into two major segments, at least the early history. Um, there, there's what's called the early diffusion of the Dharma, uh, which is under the three great Dharma kings of the imperial period, starting with Songsen Gampo in the middle of the 7th century, and then intensifying with Trishong Detsen in the latter part of the 8th century, and then culminating uh, and also ending with Ralpachan in the ninth century. And these were the uh, figures, part of the Yarlung dynasty of sort of south-central Tibet, who unified the fractious nobility that, that, to that point had been Tibetan polity and uh, turned Tibet into actually a powerful empire um, with a with a, a, a very significant and feared military force that, in fact, under the reign of uh, Trishong Detsen, I believe, occupied the Chinese capital for some time. And Tibetans will occasionally suggest that their occupation of the Chinese capital in the eighth century was a distant karmic cause for the occupation of Tibet by the Chinese starting in 1950. Can, <laughs> the karma can be endlessly debated, but uh, that, I have heard that from a number of different people. Um, anyway, the, this, this sort of early glorious period in which, to be honest, most people were not Buddhists. Uh, most people practice something like the Bön religion that had predated Buddhism. Um but, but the but a number but the, the monarchy itself and a number of, of nobles uh were attracted to Buddhism. The process of translating Indian texts into Tibetan began uh in earnest and, and very systematically. Uh temples were founded, uh, monasteries were founded. So it was making inroads and then it 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 suffered a series of setbacks. Uh And there was a period of 100 to 150 years where, at least in central Tibet, Buddhism was on the wane. Tibetans regard this as a kind of dark age um, in which the Dharma had had sort of seemed to have disappeared. But though the the empire never was revived, uh, starting about the year 1000, uh, a variety of uh, figures from India began to reappear in Tibet and to teach Tibetans who were interested in the latest developments in in Indian Buddhism, which by the year 1000 were quite different from what they'd been in, say, 750. The Tantra tradition in particular had changed dramatically in various ways. And this is why the Tantras that the Nyingma school, the the old tradition, follows are, are often quite early and not were not all that significant by the year 1000. But in any case, the year 1000 begins the second diffusion. I'm picking 1000 as a round figure, but uh, the, the second diffusion. And, and in this, you get uh, the, you really get the rise of the various orders uh, or schools, nobody can ever agree on what term in English ought to be used for these traditions. But, but the, the Kadam, which was inspired by uh, Atisha, the visiting Indian scholar, and then by his Indian disciple Dromtunpa, and then by a variety of, of Kadam Geshe's. Uh, geshe having a different term in those days than it has nowadays. It's, nowadays, it's a very specific designation for a scholastic rank attained within the Gaelog. But it just means a spiritual friend, a Kalyana mitra in, in Sanskrit. So, uh, Achishya helped to inspire the, the, the Kadam tradition with its, its mind-training teachings, um, its, its practice of, of austerity and asceticism. Um, you have the the Kagyu tradition, you know, which was you know, on the Indian side inspired by Tilopa and Naropa and our friend Maitripa, um, and then on the Tibetan side by Marpa and then his disciple Milarepa, and then particularly Gampopa, uh, Milarepa's disciple, who helped to sort of organize and institutionalize what till then had been a sort of mostly meditative tradition. Um, and you, you have as well the, the Sakya order, again, the Indian Mahasiddha or great Tantric adept Virupa inspired that. And he taught Rokmi Lotsawa a, a Tibetan translator um, who was in turn affiliated with a very important family in Song in West Central Tibet, the Kun family. And uh, this, this family sort of picked up. the the teachings that had been transmitted and established Sakya Monastery and the great great scholastic tradition and great tantric traditions as well, uh, connected with that. And the Nyingma, which of course traces itself to an early period, only really became an organized entity um, in this second diffusion. Uh, but, but clearly there were texts that they looked back to that, that were much, much earlier. And that's why they consider themselves the old tradition. That's what Nyingma means. It's the old tradition. Um, so these various traditions flourished in, in one way or another. Uh, they, there was no central government in the way that there had been in the empire. So mostly they had to attract the patronage of various uh, nobles in this or that region. And, and that was largely the way in which, uh, you know, up until about the 17th century anyway, uh, Tibetan religious and political history developed, was these alliances between lamas and nobles. Um, some people have likened it to situations in medieval Europe, I don't know, the, the analogies tend to break down uh, at a certain point. But, but it's, it's not entirely different from that either. I mentioned Sakyapandita, one of the, uh, and, and I mentioned earlier some of his great contributions, but one of the things that he uh, did, uh, I, don't, I don't know whether he did this uh, uh, voluntarily exactly, but the, the Mongol Empire, uh, uh, which would become the Yuan dynasty of China, uh, basically asked the Tibetans, um, please send us one of your best. And nobody really wanted to mess with the Mongols too much. Memories of Genghis Khan, who stopped short of Tibet, uh, were, were fresh. And so Sakya Pandita was sort of sent <laughs> to the Mongol court. Good luck. Um, but he was a very skilled diplomat, uh, very charismatic, and was successful there. And his nephew, Pakpa, uh, became a tutor to uh, the Yuan Emperor Kublai Khan um and in gratitude for what the sakyapas had uh or sorry yeah for what the sakyapas had taught him the khan basically gave tibet to the sakyapas um put it under their administrative control well the the sakyapas weren't really particularly interested in administering tibet and their Their yoke was a light one. But nevertheless, uh, officially speaking, for about 75 years, the Sakya was the dominant tradition in in Tibet. And uh, it was only with the overthrow of the Yuan Dynasty in the middle of the 14th century, which takes us roughly to the time Tsongkhapa was born, that uh, Tibetans begin to achieve something like a version of independence. I mean, they weren't under really strict control by the Yuan Dynasty. Uh, These are all political matters we could get into in some other context, but um, nevertheless, with the overthrow of the Yuan dynasty, Sakyapa hegemony in Tibet was eliminated, and there was this kind of fresh feeling of uh, a sense of of nationhood and of national purpose and national history as well. Um, And the... The uh, there was a particular noble house, the Pakmo, drew that that uh, came into ascendancy at this time, and they were great supporters of the Kagyu, uh, particularly the Karma Kagyu, but but the Kagyu more broadly. The the other thing that happened around this time, again just just really on the on the eve of Tsongkhapa's birth, at least figuratively speaking, was that the great project of translating the The Indian Buddhist literature into Tibetan, which had begun as early as the eighth century and certainly in the ninth, was brought to completion by a great figure named Bhutan Rinchen Drup, who was more or less Sakyapa in affiliation but had you know these we tend to think in these sectarian terms, but in these early years, people went back and forth and it's very hard to actually identify them with only one school. But he was a great, great scholar uh, of both the sutras and the tantras. And, uh, and the, basically was the editor of what became the Tibetan canon, what we call the Kangyur and the Tengyur, the translated word of the Buddha, the sutras and the tantras, and then the, the great commentaries and treatises composed by various Indian masters and Mahasiddhas and so forth. And this, as any of you who've seen it uh, know, well, we've got some of it. I've got some of it here, but uh, if you ever go to Deer Park in Wisconsin, it goes like right to the ceiling. Um, it's uh, you know 108 volumes traditionally in the in the sutras and tantras, and then 225 or 30 maybe in the other. It's 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 a big collection. Now you can't get that into a motel room drawer. Uh, let's put it that way. Um, anyway. Um, so the, these are these are sort of the, the roughly speaking the the social and, and political circumstances at the time of Tsongkhapa's birth. Uh, religiously speaking, and now this this is somewhat tendentious and controversial. So I'm I'm going to present it with a grain of salt from the Geluk perspective because not everybody would agree with the way Gelukpas have come to see the situation into which Tsongkhapa came, almost as a kind of savior, right? Um, but but the Gaelic view is that the practice of vinya, that is, the 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 rules and regulations, the, the guidelines, especially for monastic life, though to a lesser degree for the life of lay people as well, but mostly it's about how monks and nuns live, um, was, as it had been periodically in Tibetan history, was somewhat in decline. I mean, Atisha is seen as one of those figures who helped to revive monasticism when it was teetering after the after the end of this kind of dark age as as Tibetans regard it um, the whole tri- tradition that sakya pandita had helped inaugurate of serious study of the epistemological and logical classics of figures like dignaga and especially dharmakirti had kind of fallen it hadn't it had disappeared entirely because there were great monasteries like Nartang and and Retting and and others that that maintained these traditions, but there was much more enthusiasm for schools that said, "Ah, oh, we just meditate. We don't. We don't worry so much about, uh, you know, scholastic hair splitting." So again, study of epistemology was it, maybe it had become kind of arcane and very specialized, and it wasn't really connected up so much to larger notions of religious life. Uh, Madhyamaka, and this is of course always a crucial question when it comes to Tsongkhapa and the Gaelic tradition in general. Madhyamaka was seen to have fallen on, into very, very bad straits. Um, it had been a topic of study, you know, as long as there had been Tibetan Buddhism, um, and again, these these great monasteries like Nartang and 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 Reting and others had had maintained, you know, some study of Madhyamaka, but but. Uh, most of the ways in which Madhyamika was being interpreted, so say later Gaeluks, were falling either towards eternalism or towards nihilism, and uh, so somebody was needed to 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 get to get this straight to find where the middle really was, because that's of course what Madhyamaka means is the middle. Um, meditation was uh, to, to, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, being malpracticed in various ways. People were. Uh, people were doing, doing things meditatively that they were not really prepared to do. They were, they were sort of jumping ahead of where they ought to be in a logical sequence, or they were uh, particularly drawn to meditations in which you just sort of you space out and you bliss out. Uh, but you don't actually have any insight into the nature of things, and this of course was a problem that the Buddha himself faced during his lifetime. There were plenty of people who could do advanced meditations in which you you know infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothing whatsoever and you you know it's it's very cool and it's 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 a wonderful experience, but there's no insight into the nature of things, and therefore he found them not to be liberating and the Buddha's great contribution, I think, from his viewpoint and the viewpoint of early Buddhists, was to have somehow combined these meditative practices, what well, more or less what we would call shamatha, or concentration meditation, with some kind of insight into the nature of things. So, again, meditation was was being uh, uh, malpracticed, if you will. And sutra and tantra, as, as the two major types of Buddhist practice, had, had somewhat become uncoupled. Um, even though in late Indian Buddhism they were integrated uh, quite clearly, um, they they had they had become separated, and some people were only interested in the Sutra side, some people only in the Tantra side.
0: Spend your summer at Maitripa College learning classical Tibetan. Read texts in their original language, learn the basis of debate, and study with our beloved Bill McGee, who brings humor and gentleness to this rigorous subject. Learn more at mytripa.org. Uh,
1: so again, the, the, again, remember this is from the Geluk perspective. You, you can find scholars who will say none of this is it was is really true, but but uh, um, but from the standpoint of the Geluk, this is the kind of situation into which somebody like Tsongkhapa needed to be born, right? Um, uh, very, very uh, quick note on, on sources for the life of Tsongkhapa. This is more, you know, a matter of perhaps scholastic interest than anything else. I have provided on the, on the back page a bibliography that includes some materials that are very useful and helpful uh, for understanding Tsongkhapa's life. But a lot was written about Tsongkhapa even within, within years of his passing. Um, his, his the, probably the most famous and comprehensive biography was written by his great disciple Kedrup Che, who was one of his two, two major disciples, along with Geltzap Che. And uh, uh, his entryway to faith uh, uh, is, is, is considered sort of the definitive biography. But other disciples of his also wrote shorter biographies, secret biographies. So even among people who knew Tsongkhapa, there, there are several biographies that appeared fairly quickly, not to mention that then other figures in other times and places later in the tradition would would sort of use this material to try to create yet another comprehensive biography. And I will mention that uh, you should stay tuned because Tupton Jinpa, whom I think all of you know of as a you know great scholar and translator for His Holiness the Dalai Lama, is going to bring out, I think it may be this year, uh, by far the, the best English language biography of Tsongkhapa that's ever been attempted. I mean, Jinpa knows the, all the literature. He's read all the biographies, and I had a chance to have a kind of look at it last summer, and it's, it's extraordinary. Um, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's really a monumental achievement. Um, so we have, we have a lot of sources for, for understanding Tsongkhapa's life. Uh, doesn't mean that it's not cast in the vein of hagiography and that therefore uh, separating out things that probably happened from things that might not have happened isn't difficult. But that's, that's the problem with biography everywhere, right? I mean, all biographies are constructions by an author who selects what he or she thinks is important and leaves out other things. Uh, but certainly it's, it's fair to say that the biographies we have of Tsongkhapa um, are were written primarily for the purpose of inspiration, uh, for us to to understand what a great figure he was, what contributions he made, how, you know, how utterly unique he was in 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 the sort of overall history of Tibetan Buddhism. So, um, I'm going to talk about uh, his life in sort of three three segments, roughly, uh, early, middle, and late. <laughs> um, not uh, not nothing too controversial about that, perhaps. Um, <laughs> Standards way of approaching things. I think uh, Tibetans would probably have no no problem with that approach themselves. Um, he was born uh, to, to repeat uh, in the in the northeastern region of Amdo. Uh, this is uh, the, the area he was born in is now in Qinghai province of the People's Republic. Uh, the, the closest big city nowadays to where he was born is Xining. Um, not too far from, say, Lake Lake Kokonor. Uh, do I have that right? Yes. Yeah, Kokonor. The, um, yeah, the Tibetans call it Blue Lake. Um, a great, uh, large inland body of water uh, found in Amdo. So he's... He's from the boonies basically um the song Songka, this particular area he was born in songka songka means like onion land so he's he's the song kappa means the person or the man from onion land um and that's that's of course the name by which most of us know him nowadays but uh, uh he was actually uh and i i'll i'll, I'll pass over the the various miraculous stories associated with premonitions of his birth and the dreams and the visions his mother had and um, anyway it was it was all remarkable uh, of course uh just you can you can read about it in the biographies um his his father uh i th- i think was of uh, they weren't a wealthy family but i don't they weren't peasants either his father i think had had some connection with Actually, with the Yuan Dynasty as kind of a minor official. Anyway, um, he he was born in this area in 1357, and and was you know steered either either was inclined towards or was steered towards a religious vocation very early. Because when he was three years old, maybe four, he was uh, he was given his lay vows and refuge by the fourth Karmapa Lama, who happened to be traveling through the area. Um, and by the age of seven, he received uh, preliminary or novice ordination, and it was at this point that he was given the, the name by which he would be known ever after, Lotsang Drakpa. Uh, Lotsang meaning good mind, Drakpa meaning famous, renowned. Um, so uh, Sumati Kirti is the is the Sanskrit for that, and if you if you if you ever chant, uh, sonkapas. Name mantra, Sumat Kirti, turns up in that because name mantras always give you, uh, always include the Sanskrit of the Tibetan name of the figure involved. So if you do a, a, a name mantra of Lama Zopa Rinpoche, uh, that'll, the, the Sanskrit equivalent of Tuptan Zuppa will, will appear in there. Um. Anyway, uh, that's just a, a side note. So, so he was ordained by this figure, Chijay Dundrup Rinchan, um, who I think was primarily associated with the Kadam tradition, um, maybe to some degree with the Sakya. Um, anyway, not, not Nyingmapa, not Kagyupa. Um, and, uh, you know, it may be because of some of the visions and dreams that Tsongkhapa's parents ha- had had, or perhaps it was his, you know, just showing... This, this is at a point, it should be noted, before the, the tulku system had really taken hold much. It was starting to take hold in Tibet during the 14th century. It probably goes back a century or so before that, but uh, there wasn't... I don't think it, it, it occurred to people particularly that Tsongkhapa was the reincarnation of some lama who had been who had died, you know, just before, you know, a year or so before he was born. But nevertheless, he showed all the kinds of characteristics that tulkus typically do. You know, he was, he was obviously clearly bright, uh, really drawn to Dharma and so forth. And, and so, uh, you know, took him sort of under his wing and, you know, began giving him instructions at an early age in the sutras and the tantras, and he began reading basic texts. and He had a, an extraordinary memory, right? He could could memorize page after page um, in the course of a single day. Just just showed all these all these characteristics that nowadays we would associate with somebody say must be a tulku. Um, but he he began studying, you know, basic texts, and probably he he began with the kinds of things that young monks might begin. In a monastery nowadays, with like Lorik, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, way, learning about the mind and reasoning and so forth, and you know, basic topics like this. But he was also introduced at a very early age to tantric practices. Um, in fact, his uh, his teacher Dzo uh, Rinchen was was particularly uh, drawn to had it says yidam, we might say, his tutelary deity. Uh, Vajrabhairava, Jikche, or, or Yamantaka, right, the bull-headed, um, <laughs> wrathful manifestation of Manjushri, as he's usually explained to be. And, uh, and so Tsongkhapa was, was initiated into this at a, at a very early age. Um, and he was not only extraordinary in an intellectual sense, but he was prone to visions from a very early age. People people tend, when talking about Tsongkhapa, not fully to, and one of the points I want to make tonight is that people I don't think fully appreciate what a mystic Tsongkhapa was and what a visionary he was. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, people think of a gay look and they think of debate and they think of intellect and they think of, you know, f- fine-grained Madhyamaka philosophy and epistemology and all this, but there, there is a whole mystical, visionary side to the tradition. And I think those of you who've been in it a while certainly appreciate, but uh, people further to the outside don't always get that. And Tsongkhapa clearly embodies both. And he, even in an early age, he, he was subject to visions of, for instance, Atisha. Now, again, I've mentioned that one of the early names for the Gaelic was Neo-Kadam. Atisha was the inspirer of this Kadam tradition. Which, by the time of Tsongkhapa, I should mention, had, it hadn't disappeared entirely, but because it had never institutionalized in quite the way that the Kagyu and the Sakya and even the Nyingma had. Because, again, it, it tended to be these figures who had small groups of disciples off in the mountains, and they just didn't, they didn't get the same kind of noble patronage. Didn't they didn't sort of take hold at least in an institutional sense? But their their ideas, their practices, mojong for instance, mind training, um, you know, were, was permeated every tradition. Extremely influential, but not really established very well institutionally. Anyway, um, so so Songkapa had. Visions of Atisha, you know, probably you know before he was in his teens, even the the great uh, Power Bodhisattva or Power Buddha Vajrapani. Uh, there were probably others as well. Um, it became clear, and this is this is a pattern you see in in Tibetan history that really bright kids from the bunis get sent to Lhasa uh, because it, you know they. He had a wonderful teacher for his first, you know, essentially decade or more. Um, and yet there was only so much that Dunderbrinchen could really teach him. And so he said, you know, you should go off, you should go off to, to Lhasa where the great, you know, the great monasteries we think of in Lhasa were not there at this point, but there was Sakya, which was further to the west in Song. There was Nartang, there was Retting, uh, there was Sangpu. These were the great kind of scholastic centers. Then there were the, the Kagyu centers like Trigung and Densatil and on and on and on i mean there were uh, the the whole central tibetan area by this time was just blossoming with with monasteries of one kind or another and song kappa moved there basically when he was 16 years old and he never went back to amdo he spent the whole rest of his life either in in the central part of tibet or central western part of tibet um and uh he, uh, one of the key things about Tsongkhapa is, and this, this makes sense when I, I commented earlier, that, that one, of, one of the great things about Tsongkhapa was this attempt, anyway, to, to forge this grand scholastic synthesis of everything there was in the sutras and tantras um, in such a way that it all hangs together and becomes actually something you can practice in real life, not just a not just a scholastic edifice, but something that was applicable. And uh, he did that. He was able to do this in part because he was a peripatetic student. He, I don't know, if you, if you think about friends you've had who've, you know, gone to like six colleges um, and eventually maybe they get a degree. Um, Tsongkhapa, you have to multiply this. It's said traditionally that he studied with 50 different teachers um, in, especially in his early years in Central Tibet, and um, you know, just for the sake of convenience, and I'm, I'm not really going to say very much about these. Um, he studied with Kag- the very first place he went when he got to Central Tibet was Drigung Monastery, a great Kagyu monastery of, of the Drigung subsect of uh, of uh, of the Kagyu. And the very first things he learned at Drigung were a particular Drigung Mahamudra practice the fivefold practice, and something about the six yogas of Naropa. Uh, these two together form the core, in fact, of Kagyu practice traditions. He also studied medicine there. Very early on, he was a, a student of medicine uh, with this great... Uh, uh, he learned medicine from somebody else, but the Kagyu teachings he learned from Cengachukki-Gyalpo. Um, Buluk teachers. Buluk, Buluk is not uh, typically considered one of the great traditions. In fact, it's no longer extant. But this is, this is basically a way of saying the school of Bhutan. Uh, Luk, Luk means tradition or system, and Bu is short for Bhutan, who was the great editor of the Tripitaka. And again, as I mentioned, a great scholar of sutra and tantra. He had a particular interest in Kalachakra, actually. Um, and he studied, uh, very importantly, Guya Samaja Tantra with uh, this particular Bhuluk teacher Kyungpo Lepa, who he had dreams and visions of and eventually found. Um, and the Guya Samaja would for Tsongkhapa, become the essential tantric system uh, that 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 on which by which everything else was to be understood, even the even the sort of slightly different systems of Chakra Samvara or Vajra Yogini or, he, or he Vajra, which are mother tantras. Guhyasamaja is a father tantra. Anyway, um, this 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 became key for him, and Guya, he he would go on to write great commentaries on Samaja. He had a Nyingma teacher, at least one, um, by the name of Namka Geltsen, um, uh, who who actually had he he not only was a great Nyingma teacher, but he had, he had received Kadampa teachings that Tsongkhapa had not been able to get from his first teacher back in Amdo. And he, this Nyingma teacher with these Kadam lineages as well transmitted them to Tsongkhapa. So by the time he had studied with Namka Gyatzen, he had all three of the major lineages of the, the Kadam that stemmed back to Atisha. And he also studied in some way or other, he studied Dzogchen with, with this figure. Um, I'm actually going to give a paper this summer at a conference on Tsongkhapa as Dzogchenpa. Um, and there, there's a whole, that's a whole other side story. You, somebody can ask me in Q&A, but, but I'm not going to get into it now. But but I will say that Namka Geltsen, who went under a, a number of uh, other names as well, had a special connection to Vajrapani, whom of course Tsongkhapa had also had visions of when he was younger, and, um, Namka Geltsen would act as a kind of intermediary, and Tsongkhapa would ask these questions about meditation, uh, and, uh, Kunga Geltsen, I say Kunga? Uh, Namka, sorry, Namka Geltsen would convey them to Vajrapani, who would give Namka, Namka Geltsen the answer, who would convey it to Songkap. And there's this text in Tsongkhapa's collected works that's basically all about Dzogchen. Um, and what that means is hard, hard exactly to know, but uh, it's it's there, and it, it's uh, unquestionable that he had that exposure as well. He studied with a, a Jonangpa teacher. The Jonangpa, again, it's not one of the major traditions. It's still in existence, though, and it's best known. Uh, for, I, I gotta, I gotta restrain myself when I start getting into this philosophical stuff, but. Uh, there's a there's a particular way of understanding emptiness called in Tibetan shentong, which uh, is a way of understanding emptiness not as n- not as emptiness of inherent existence the way you've all been hearing about for years, but as emptiness of what is other than the pure Buddha mind within us. Um, and uh, it 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 was controversial, um, and in fact uh, Tsongkhapa rejected this philosophical view quite adamantly, but they, the Jonangpas also had uh, uh, wonderful transmissions of the Kala Chakra Tantra, and therefore he, he did glean from his Jonangpa teacher uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of information and practices connected to the Kala Chakra. Um, probably the, uh, the most important teacher he had in this sort of, you know, his, this after he got to central Tibet and, and a figure who would be important in his life you know right up to the time of this teacher's death is rendawa uh who was a sakapa master and 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 a, an, a particularly uh philosophically oriented he was very knowledgeable about the traditions of dharmakirti and and other logicians and epistemologists and he'd given a great deal of serious thought to madhyamaka i mean he he really anticipated song in some ways in seeing the deficiencies of interpretations of Madhyamaka in this era and uh, so he, he and Tsongkhapa were really kindred spirits and although on, on one level he was Tsongkhapa's teacher, he was a bit older and you know more learned at the time that he met Tsongkhapa, he immediately recognized Tsongkhapa's genius and in fact they, they got into one of these relationships, which you, you find now and again in Tibetan history, where they were, each was master and disciple to the other. And so the, the verse that we chanted, uh, the, the, the second verse that we chanted uh, before we began, the miksema, was with slight variations in phrasing, originally composed by Rendawa, uh, no, uh, no, sorry, was, was originally composed by Tsongkhapa to celebrate his teacher, Rendawa, who sort of played, edited it slightly, changed a few words, and said, "No, no, this is actually for you. Um, that's where the Sukhendso, you know, got in there, and probably something or other." Rendawa. Um, anyway, it's a it's a lovely story, and and they had a uh, an important and 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 long-lasting relationship. Songkapah learned epistemology and Madhyamika from him uh, to the degree that it was possible, and also. Uh, from another Sakyapa teacher, was initiated into and uh, learned about the Chakrasambara Tantra, which again, along with Guya Samaja, was, pro- was and, and, and the, the, the Tantra of Dorji Jikche or Yamantaka. Those three were the ones that, that were most influential for Tsongkhapa, and as a result, they're the three that have come down in Gelo tradition, at least officially speaking, as the most important. Nowadays, you tend to find that Vajrayogini and Yamantaka are sort of the two things that people practice most often, but that's, that's a result of a lot of historical twists and turns. Vajrayogini in particular, though it was certainly present uh, in, in the tradition from from Tsongkhapa's time, uh, was only put into the mainstream of the Gaeluk. Uh, by Pabonka Rinpoche in the early late 19th and early 20th century. There's been some good scholarship done on this. Anyway, you know, at, at this point, Tsongkhapa, having studied a lot, thought a lot, um, began to write a little bit. Um, the, you know, these are all the kind of common activities of a great master. You you study, you teach, you write. You um, and he, he wrote a couple of early texts, which, I again, I won't go into the details of these, but it's interesting that, um, well, the, probably the, the first significant text he wrote, I'm sure he was writing poems and letters and things like that. His collected works are full of things like that. But um, this this text on the eight difficult points uh, in regard to Yogachara philosophy, so... So points like the existence or non-existence of a foundational or storehouse consciousness, the alaya vijnana which is, of course, a major idea in the Yogacara philosophical tradition of Mahayana Buddhism, or the idea also common in Yogacara and in some other schools that, there, that simultaneous with our mental consciousness, there is a, a kind of self-awareness, uh, a, re- a reflexive awareness uh, that, that cognizes everything that we think. Um, it's not, not technically considered an extra consciousness. It's eight is enough, it seems. But, uh, sorry, uh, but uh, it, it nevertheless is an important idea and it's, a, it's still an important idea in Kagyu and Yingma traditions. It's very important in Dzogchen and to some degree in Kagyu Mahamudra. But anyway, various ideas like this, mostly from the Yogacara and and Tsongkhapa kind of going through these and for the most part trying to refute them. Um, And he also wrote... because his original teacher had sort of guided him towards the study of this text and the, early on. And this may be why it's one of the first texts that Tibetan monastics in the Gelug tradition study first. Now, uh, what's called in Sanskrit, the Lankara, uh, the ornament of clear realization, which is one of the five great books of Maitreya. It's basically a systematic attempt to understand the perfection of wisdom sutras as a stages of the path text. Um, it's very in it's in its skeletal form it's very dry and very confusing but when it when you fill it out it's 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 remarkable and it actually anticipates the stages of the path literature in various ways you know having appeared in fifth century india but he he wrote a commentary on this um, and again it's 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 early and some of the philosophical positions he takes there he would later take back or 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 progress on i mean it wasn't like he he had, he had the same views his entire life. It's quite clear, particularly when it comes to Madhyamaka, that, that it was a process of development. And, you know, he learned a lot from Rendawa, his Sakyapa teacher, thought about it, a lot about it himself. But, uh, one scholar who's, who's done a lot of work with this says that actually the viewpoint in this early text, the Golden Garland, is more like a Svatantrika Madhyamaka perspective, uh, not the Prasangika that would, of course, become his central doctrine much later on.
0: Thank you for listening to the Maitrepa College podcast. If you would like to learn more about Maitrepa College, please visit our website at maitrepa.org www.maitripa.org. This podcast was produced by Alfredo Piñeguero, Kate McDonald, Andrew Hughes, and me, your host, Tiffany Blumenthal.